Hello and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Scott. Say hi. Hello. And me, Bree. You're Bree? Yeah. Welcome back. Welcome back. How was your summer? <laughs> Pretty good. I, I, you know, we kept uploading episodes through Ju- July, right? We did one episode every day. <laughs> and, you know, we did so much work for it. Read a lot. A lot of books. Our computer crashed. None of them uploaded. Mm. So we are, I think this is the first one we've done since, since Dawn. Kind of different than Dawn. But also kind of the same. Words on paper. <laughs> Actually, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned Dawn, Brie. Thank you so much. Thought, I want to go back and revisit my, uh, my scoring for Dawn, I realized. Oh, okay. In the in, so in the What pos- score did you give it, a seven? I think I gave it a seven. Yeah. I'm going to bump it up to an eight. Solely for one reason. In the midst, in the process of compiling things, editing, getting it ready to put up online, finding like a cover, I type in like Don covers mm-hmm. and got like a ton of different covers other than the ones that we had. And there were a lot that were just really racist. <laughs> it was just like they had them doing all these things that are just clearly white people. It deserves an eight. Just for a reiteration of the stupid shit it's dealing with at the time. Like, yeah, sure, why not give it an eight? That's it. That's my thoughts on Don. Hopefully Robert Holstack has also been a victim of, of some bigotry and prejudice for his sake. And then you can bump up his book a little bit. It's been a month, but you still put that A in there for at the end of the name. I think at the end of Don, still had Mr. Stack. Well, there it is. <laughs> okay, regardless. Yeah, so I bump it up a little bit. You keep it a seven. Fine, you're complicit in like structural racism in the States. Um, we're back. It's been a month. First up. Project Runway, season 14. This will be exclusively related to Project Runway episodes from here on out. I'm just surprised there are so many mythicos in this one. <laughs> in this Project Runway? Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I know. They started at the periphery of my vision. Yes. As they do. Back to the book. So, Scott, this week on the show we read Robert Holstack's 1980... Holstock. I did it again. <laughs> We read Robert Holstock's 1984 novel, Mythigo Wood, um, a winner of the World Fantasy Award. <laughs> it says it on the cover. What are your favorite World Fantasy Award winners? <laughs> okay. Um, Scott, can you describe the plot to us, please? Sure. Mythigo, how have you been saying it? Mythigo, Mythago? Solely due to Caprice. Uh, when I say the title, I was saying Mythago Wood, and when I was saying the things, Mythigos, I was saying Mythigo. Mm. Exact opposite of me. Yes, exactly. I know. The this time when we discussed how to pronounce things, I think is probably our listeners' favorite time of the podcast. I mean, it's hard because I know how boring it is <laughs> because it doesn't matter, but at the same time, it's one of the silliest things to me is that they do have all these words. It's true. And, it, you know, they come into my personal life, too. Like, I, I've been de- describing people as Urmscrums lately. <laughs> we'll get to the Urmscrum. Okay, Mythigo Wood is a British fantasy written by Robert Holdstock. It was published in 1984, which was one year after I was born. And we both aged fairly well in the meantime, although I separated my shoulder once. And I guess I'd also had my tonsils taken out at some point, probably around the time Mythigo Wood was eight or so. Books are probably pretty happy they don't have tonsils or skin, which is pretty but so fragile, or cells for that matter, which degenerate. And some even turn against you, which is bad when they do so quickly, and in great numbers. 
Like us, though, books do hold a lot inside themselves that you can't see just by looking at them. And I guess some of this can eventually sour with age, too. Sal Paradise flits in and out of his Mexican lover's culture, only quick enough for us to think that he's a privileged misogynist. And Mr. Bennett just seems like a callow monster. Come on, man, put some money away. I'd imagine no book sufficiently old is immune to these kinds of unforeseen growths. Not all are terminal cases, however. If Ezra Pound is an eight-year-old with leukemia, then maybe Mythical Wood has just separated its shoulder too, like me. But in like a non-tragic but funny way, like two super-intelligent mice wearing tiny goggles escaped from a lab and stole an equally adorable tiny jeep and accidentally bumped into Mythical Wood when he... And note, it's definitely a he was crossing the street, thus causing him to fall into a hole filled with Jenga pieces and cotton candy, separating his shoulder. Because you see, Mythical Wood is, is really into English history. Not that this is a bad thing, it's just that the particular way in which it's into this history makes me feel weird. Okay, so let's back up. Our story takes place in the aftermath of war. Stephen Huxley returns home to his family's small estate, perched on the edge of Ryehope Wood, one of England's few remaining wild primeval woods in the late 1940s, following an injury and a long convalescence in the south of France. Christian, his brother, and also a veteran, has been home longer, attending to their soon-to-be-dead dad, and marrying a mysterious red-haired girl. Upon returning, Stephen realizes that Christian has, like their father, become unhealthily obsessed with the forest, and for good fucking reason, as we soon learn, for the wood is magic. Well, less magic than haunted. Haunted by England's past. In short, Ryehope is a kind of wooded repository of the country's collective mythico-historical unconscious. I'm sure we'll get into the mechanics of these powers, but suffice it to say that within Ryehope wood live flesh-and-blood manifestations of centuries of accumulated history and myth, Robin Hood types exist next to marauding royalist cavaliers, next to Ice Age shamans, next to Saxons, next to Romano-Britons, next to Celts. And sometimes these creatures, mythagos, or mythagos, in the brothers' parlance, can move beyond the forest along its periphery, coming into contact with the present. Such is Christian's wife. Her name is Gwyneth. She's an alluringly feral pre-Roman Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And every single Huxley man, father and son, falls in love with her at some point during the course of their interactions with the wood. Regardless, she eventually leaves Christian, and he disappears into the forest for months in search of her. Left on his own, Stephen investigates Ryhope further, and we, the audience, we witness his own gradual descent into obsessive, single-minded focus upon the wood, its secrets, and above all, Gwyneth. In his quest to learn more, he meets a pilot, Keaton, who shares both his war wounds and increasing interest in Ryhope, although for somewhat different reasons, as we learn later. Christian has since gone full savage, and he attempts to kill Stephen after finding him with Gwyneth. He's thwarted by the most monstrous mythical of all, the Orskomug, a large half-animal, half-human creature that simultaneously represents the most primordial ancient myth of them all, and the domineering and oppressive presence of the boy's father, in their own cowed unconscious. Okay, so Stephen, with Keaton in tow, mounts his own final excursion into the forest, 
determined to save Gwyneth and kill Christian before he can escape into the furthest reaches of Ryhope's ancient, unknowable, pre-human past, I guess, or center part. So, okay, we're dealing with a lot thematically uh, right up front here. Mythic, could say Lamarckian, permanence, the unacknowledged intersection of place, space, and people, and the intrusion of history into the present. But if we look a bit deeper as well, we've got just as much to dig into. Trauma and intergenerational sexual competition, to name just two. You know a lot about that. Of course. Okay, so maybe then just considering our long break in between podcasts, and maybe as a nice qualifier to our subsequent discussion, how much of this do you remember? Is it, is it, is it hard to, going to be hard the to talk about The hardest question comes first. Exactly. Um, I definitely remember that Gwyneth smells like a vagina. <laughs> and, you know, when she's been in the house, because he'll walk in and he smells it in the front room mm-hmm. and all around. And uh, I remember the Erm Scrum, which I think you undersold a little bit. <laughs> and I'm not going to say it right, because I don't... Erm Scrum works for me. Erm Scrum's good enough. Although I must say, I mean, if we're thinking, having you are at the beginning or an old... Mesopotamian city, one of the <laughs> earliest, and a prefix in German for like original or earliest. But the Orm Robin Holstag's <laughs> number one audience right here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All I'm saying is you described it as just like half animal, half human. I, I, I knew you'd jump on that description. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought the description of it was crazy and affecting. <laughs> it was a giant boar monster. It's like 20 feet tall, right? It's like 20 feet tall. It's a boar. It has the face of a boar. But painted in white is the face of a man on that face. And somehow it also looks exactly like their dad. So, I mean, I, that actually did stick with me. In the okay. Book. Yeah. I, I, I liked it. And now with you, I guess I just want to jump right into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm kind of just interested. What did you think of the book? Oh, yeah. Okay. In general, I'm going to say I thought uh, I really liked the first half of the book. I mean, I, I thought the book was, like, pretty good in general. I thought it became really weighed down by the things that made it good. Mm. You know, like kind of its its interest in in myth. I mean, it, it was so the opposite of cold magic, obviously. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know how we talked about cold magic like wants to be interested in the stories it's telling mm-hmm. uh, from these cultures, but it's not. Mm. This book really was, and and was interested in making them. I felt like relevant to the plot and like motivate the action and stuff like that. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, once he enters the last third of the book, when he and his war friend enter the woods to go hunt for Christian, and it's just person after person after person they meet and who tells them long stories, it was weird because I, I was really into it, especially for the first third. And then in the last, I, I started to feel kind of bored. It's definitely a book in two parts. And I was really surprised when it went in, I mean, by the last, it's not quite half, but they really are in the woods for a good 150 pages at the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just, it's different in so many ways from the beginning, but it also just in like, in another frustrating way, threw off a lot of the theories I'd been developing about what this book was doing and saying beyond just like telling its story. The begin or the end became so much about their journey into this place and dealing with the myth. And becoming myths themselves. And becoming myths themselves. Mm-hmm. Threw off any of like the subtle allegorical like things I thought he was doing at the beginning and what this was saying. And... I, yeah, I feel like to say that it, it, it ruined the subtlety. Because I also, like, for the first half of the book, I thought the way that the book was talking about the war 
which was barely mentioning it, was so good. Yes. You know, basically, almost, except for the father, all the characters went to the war and fought in it. But it was almost like the book was obsessed with not looking at the war and looking at this forest and looking at everything else. And, like, you know, this place where, like, national identity and that, like, nationalistic fervor, like, is a real thing. Yes, definitely. I mean, that, that kind of gets to my main thing in which I thought, like, 250 pages in, I, I, I wasn't sure whether the forest was real. I wasn't sure. I read it as, like, a large allegory for the way in which the war impacted these men and their generation. Although thinking really hard about the father throws some of that off as well. But, I mean, all of the main characters are veterans mm-hmm. who have been wounded. And I saw it as, like, way in which they dealt and did not deal with the trauma of war and their own injuries and, like, by becoming obsessively into this, they're not dealing. I mean, it's a way of coping and not coping with the past and their own trauma. And I thought, yeah, the war seemed so central, but off to the side. But then it doesn't really factor into the end, right? They just go into the forest and they're there. I guess I felt a little different because I actually felt like it, it did factor into the end. Not the very end, but it, it brought it to the forefront too much. It was hard because, exactly like you said, the metaphor seemed to be so underneath the surface that I, I mean, because it was so subtle that I thought that's what it was, right? And mm-hmm. it was kind of doing something. But then, after finishing the book and, you know, thinking about how the last half of it fits into all of it, it seems like maybe it wasn't. Maybe all of these military coincidences are just the, like, natural background hum of any tale you set in, like, late 40s Britain. I think it was about that. I think the book just at the end kind of, in a way, copped out. Or not copped out, but it it could have lived out that thought that it was having kind of about the war. And instead it went with the with the myth adventure stuff. Right, right. Not exactly in, on, like, the plot level. I mean more, like, on the thematic level. Like, it ended with him becoming a myth, and now he's the person who waits for the girl to walk through the fire. And one day she'll walk back, and there's a destiny there. Right. Although, plot-wise, I wish it had gone a little more action at the end, unless, like... Meet someone with a story, meet someone with a myth, meet someone with a myth. But I do feel like it was meaning to say that because one moment I liked because it kind of brought the whole thought about the war to somewhat of a close was his friend Keaton. Mm -hmm. The pilot. Yeah, when he finally learns that Keaton's interest isn't just like a friendly, that Keaton was shot down during the war. Over France. Over France and landed in a forest just like this. And um, he was with another person who was shot down. And he saw basically heaven, like a golden, perfect place. And his friend entered and he was attacked, not allowed to enter. And that's why he has the scar on his face. When we learn this, Keaton has that line about um, how he's come to find that place because what can burn can unburn. And then the character says, so you're looking for heaven? And he says, no, I'm looking for peace. We were supposed to invest all of that thinking about the war, which had been cast over all the characters, just into that. And he was the one who was actually like living out that destiny. Right. But that's frustrating because that that's the interesting stuff in the book. So the father is also, he's the initial Huxley interested in the forest. And we don't have any sense, I mean, we don't know if he served in the First World War. We just don't. So my thought, a lot of it was that they're seeing these, these mythagos are not actually real. But it doesn't work with the father. I mean, if there's any psychological ground being tilled here, it's just of like father-son relationships. Especially the way it ends. The war is there and it, it informs the way maybe in which the brothers throw themselves into this obsessive quest so readily. But because of the father, it can't be. It can't be an explanation. That's true. And I do think there's there's some dissonance between what you mentioned, like the, the Freudian and the Jungian psychological stuff. Because obviously, like, you know, the book is kind of founded on, like, 
Jung's archetypes and collective unconscious. It uses that as an explanation for its magic in a way right. that is cool to right. me. You know, right. I liked that explanation. But at the same time, you know, like a, a ridiculously obvious Freudian drama playing out right. with these boys who are now orphans but haunted by the terrifying monster person of their father who's always nipping at their heels. Right, literally like nipping at their heels, yeah, like chasing they, them. Yeah, like they'll turn around and see his head pop up over the trees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or his boar head. His boar head, yeah. I mean, this goes, yeah, I mean like that for being very clear, I mean like your father in the shape of like a ravenous beast chasing you in competition for like a... <laughs> a really hot 16-year-old. A really hot 16-year-old you're all in love with. It's so against the grain of whatever subtle was happening at the beginning that I thought... I mean, even, so I was reading this and would like catch really little lines that I now realize were probably just throwaways, but I read a lot into them thinking of the subtlety. So once he goes to, this is early before he goes in, before he's totally obsessed, he goes to the bank, like one of the few times he leaves the estates and goes into the town and Christian, his brother is already in the forest for a long time. And there's a little line where he like, it says, I told the bank teller hey, my brother's lost in the forest and people looked at me like they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so I think felt a little bit there about like an un unreliable narrator and that like what we're really supposed to see behind that is a crazy PTSD soldier. And like we're supposed to understand mm -hmm. that it's crazy that he's telling these people that his brother's lost in the forest. Mm -hmm. And another time, did you notice, but if I think about it now, it seems like it is fulfilling that this is true. Very early when he's first getting a sense of mythicos being in there, He's standing on his porch and he sees like a really huge man. We must, I think, imagine now is just like a, like some sort of like medieval hunter there with a huge dog. Oh yeah, I remember that. And it scares him, and the guy, and then he just he looks at him menacingly and then walks off. And then later he notes that he hears on the radio in the background a decomposing body of a man and a dog were found in a town next to them. Mm -hmm. Did you think maybe like he had killed them, and this was one of those? Because the mythicos like regenerate, like one can die, but then it's still in the collective unconscious, so it'll come up again. Yeah. So he finds Gwyneth's body at some point, though this is before we even meet her. And I totally thought it was like in in the lake of the woods, like he's gonna find dead bodies and not realize that he killed them in like PTSD panic. Oh, spoiler alert! Shit, I was gonna watch it. Uh, my favorite line of the story was actually took place in that disorientation in that period when I kind of felt like that stuff was going on too. And it actually might be when he gets home from the bank or whatever. And he says, uh, he like comes in, he comes to the kitchen and then he just says, something like panic had affected me. And the next morning I just ran around the woodland until I was breathless and saturated with sweat. <laughs> it's great. And then it went to something else. And it was just such a quick kind of creepy disorienting moment. We're given kind of crazy information about what he's doing, how he's panicking, but in a very sober way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I read behind him telling these bank tellers that my brother's lost in the woods. Through his voice, it seems like they don't understand. But if you look at it another way, they think he's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it depends if I'm being generous or not, or I don't know. I mean, in the kind of gross difference between tone and just like plausibility of the two sections. What it made me think of was a couple of things, and I didn't know if it was doing this. And now that I look back on it, it probably wasn't, but so the popular one is like adaptation or the movie adaptation. Or, the, <laughs> or there was this book I read when I was like into Umberto Eco, the guy who did Name of the Rose. He has this book called Badalino, a medieval story about this dude who like follows Frederick Barbarossa around. The first half of the book is really just like a straightforward historical fiction set in the Middle Ages. And in the second half, 
it's really, really fantastical, and the protagonist like goes and visits Prester John in his kingdom. But it is presented in a way like it's just like the continuation of the plot. But you realize that you've now entered your own Prester John myth, and that at some point, the narrative entered something else beyond that, like adaptation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I thought that's what happened here. Like we're following someone who's had like major PTSD, and then he just loses all touch of reality, and then we're with him when he's in the woods, you know, mm-hmm. for hundreds of pages. But I don't think so. I think I think it was actually I think it actually happened. I mean, I think it did too, but, and I thought that at the end too, because I love, because the PTSD narrative is the one that kind of moves me, I wanted to think of the whole thing as sort of like crazy dream that's sort of, take the like allegorical underpinnings of the thing and make them like the main stage, but it lets you still think that. I think so, and this is why, I mean, it might seem where I or we are being harsh, even if it kind of undermines it at different points, I think you leave with still at least the impression of those thoughts. Okay, so before we get into uh, not how we wanted the book to be, <laughs> and more like the book we read and about his love affair with Gwyneth, <laughs> and about Robin Hood, were you attracted to Gwyneth? Uh, Gwyneth seemed like a cipher to me. And again, this is where the book is like nicely hard to pin down. Your criticisms, not that it might necessarily has like already anticipated them and is acting against it, but it's it's shifty enough that where it still works. So like Gwyneth is a crazy wish fulfillment. But like, as she's supposed fun. to be. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So explain it. I mean, I had that thinking too. I had that thought too. You know, when you referenced her as a manic pixie dream girl in the beginning, which she so is to like the the craziest point possible. You know, she's like crazy red hair and she's like giggling in a made up language, wearing his shirt while like learning to you know bake with her feet or something. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the fact that she is, like, a product of the collective unconscious, and she is the wild woman. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, that is who she is. And yeah. I liked that, too. And I liked, in kind of in a different vein, I like how the book... Didn't... Not just even collective. I think, like, a masculine. Like, yeah. and specifically the men in the family. They're, like, creating her and creating her anew, right? So she's very much all of the Huxley's men's, like, visions of... yeah. Well, I mean, the Huxley men and I have a lot in common. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Redheads apply here. Genrestop.com. But in, another thing that I like how the book handled and that it didn't shy away from it at all was how many times it reiterated, I think they say her terrifying childlike sexuality. <laughs> I mean, it keeps referring to her as being oddly childlike in a way that would be creepy if it, if it wasn't so committed to it. And if it wasn't so like, yeah, she is like from however many years ago. Well, if the Jimmy Seville scandals have taught us anything about Britain, it's that <laughs> thoughts about age of consent pedophilia in the <laughs> 80s and 70s, you know, a little different than we think of now. All right, yeah, maybe I'm looking at it with that modern eye when actually it's like... Well, we turn our, you know, we don't, we don't talk about the man touching the 10-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but she was 16. Even so. less of a reason to say anything. Regardless, okay, so wait, I forgot to ask you, how would you do in this world? Not a ton of women here. No, no, no. I wouldn't be entering the forest very much, <laughs> personally. You know, he enters the forest one time and some guy just, like, shoots him. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First of all, just I personally dislike camping. <laughs> that's all that can happen. I would do well if I was that nine-year-old they had naked with her face <laughs> painted green. <laughs> they worshipped her and she told stories. So this is getting to kind of what... And, like, I'm with you about the ways in which the last third or half of the book didn't work. But I liked 
the different levels of English history they're going back through and seeing. And, I mean, we've kind of talked about a lot, but we still haven't really dug into the way in which the wood works and what it shows. I like the part where, you know, he's going back and he's at one point with a Neolithic village, and then he walks a little bit more and he sees, like, an old Roman villa, you know, run down. Saxon family is there, and they don't really know what to make of all the paintings and the things in the villa, and they're just, you know, sitting there. And then, again, he's with royalists during the Civil War. I mean, I liked that, too. I, If these are just figures from the British unconscious, then, like, where's Eliza Doolittle? <laughs> where's Harry Potter? This is, this is an ancient <laughs> I'm just saying, Let we only get more of your thoughts serious. about British culture. <laughs> I'm just saying, we only get the heroes. Where's Borat? <laughs> yeah, oh, but, I mean, actually, not because we're ignoring... The way that the forest does work is that, for some reason, the only mythicos that manifest have to do with invasion, have to do with kinship and the outsider. The figures that manifest are figures that were heroes in the collective unconscious, legendary heroes in the collective unconscious. And then, you know, as time passed, the invaders would become the people living there and they would become the Britons and then they would have their own heroes and that's how it formed. So what did you think of just like nationalism? in the, kind of what I was talking about in my intro, this, the thing that made me a little uncomfortable, or maybe this well, thing's relationship to British or English heritage, is it triumphalist? Is it nostalgic? Is it dangerous? I mean, it did kind of explicitly use the term racial memory a lot. It did use racial memory quite a bit. I, I thought it was blurring the distinctions between race and nation in a way that, to be honest, like that could be justified by the book's own stuff. Like, maybe that stuff in the collective unconscious is blurred. Right, right. You know? I mean, it's again, like we said, it's, it's, it's treading a thin line, and, you know, you can go out a couple of different ways. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it is dealing with types of, like, essences in a way. But on the other hand, it is self-consciously talking about myths people make. So it's, it's acknowledging the falseness of all these things these people are seeing at the same time, which, which I thought was kind of to the credit of the book. It wasn't saying, like, here is Robin Hood... Or here is, like, the honorable Celt fighting off the Romans. It is saying, here are the stories we tell about ourselves. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just like in... Although there's definitely something romantic. I mean, I, I guess there is, but I do think he tried to dismantle that. I mean, even just look at Gwyneth and how much he focused on how hairy she was and how... Or, like, I think Robin Hood, like, shoots him with arrows at some <laughs> point. Or, like, it's not... That's true. These aren't, like, ha- they are hostile things that he's meeting. Yes. To move away from that a little bit, how did the kind of descent into madness work for you? Because I feel like if it lost the war thread, the one thing that we can definitely say the book was, was a story of war vets' descent into obsession and possibly madness. That's hard. I thought, it goes back again, I think it did it well, but at the same time, if I look back at retrospectively, I don't know how well or how much that becomes like the dominant way in which I read this. So initially I thought this was madness and in a reflection of his wartime wounds, all of this obsessive single-mindedness on the forest is displacing whatever pain he feels, because I guess his father in the war. But once I realized it's real, it never read to me as badness, kind of. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's like a, a really, I mean, definitely he, justified obsession with this magic forest. But not exactly. I mean, it read as madness because he still wanted to enter it. It was such an obviously dangerous place. Right, and right. He, you know, he didn't just leave. I thought it was unsettling Unsettling, and I I thought I I did feel unsettled by sections and that would kind of my take on like the overall arc of of his descent 
Yeah, same thing. Like I liked it for the first half. Like I liked before he actually entered the woods for good. Right. right. And then the story kind of lost me. Did it lose you because it became too much itself? Because I don't feel I mean, like you would be some, or like not even you, but anyone. The fact that it became so much this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like other books we've read or will read are going to like jump completely into a magnificent world. Oh, that's not my problem at all. I mean, it's almost opposite that. Like I wish, I feel like the first half it had done, it had done so much in terms of philosophical underpinnings of the book that it could now, you know, it can like go back up to the surface mm. and now it can be like plot twists and like big action climaxes or something that's kind of more page turnery than, yeah. you know, these thick mythologies just layered on one another. That whole thing, there's so much of that and I feel like we're underselling exactly how much of it there is. Right, and that's why that's what made me think kind of this is maybe romantically mm-hmm. nationalistic, not even nationalistic, but just romanticizing this this British tribal ancient past mm-hmm. in which the stories became important in and of themselves in that like this is like embodying a type of British mm-hmm. ancient past and groundedness. And so like they're interesting because they're that, not that they have any or like any significance for the plot. I did think uh, I read when I finished it that this was originally a short story that he expanded into a novel and I actually think it would have worked better as sort of a short story or a novella. Mm. I can see how maybe like fleshing that out weighed down the ending. I mean, it made me think interestingly about like this or genre or this in relation to other kind of things. Or like when literary authors step into science fictional worlds or use that. Leftovers. Leftovers. Oh God, we can talk about the leftovers forever. <laughs> fucking horrible. But um, what I thought was interesting about this, I ultimately really like it. And it's just a really telling difference between I guess you'd say literary fiction or whatever, and genre writing, is that in regards to the big speculative element of this, which is like magic forest, the actual mechanics, possibilities, and workings of the forest were all like laid out really straightforward within the first 75 pages. This is what this forest is. This is how it works. I mean, it seemed like such an actual genre thing to do, to care mm-hmm. about like how the speculative part works mm-hmm. and explain it to, the, to your audience. Because, like, I can imagine in a different type the idea of, like, a mist-shrouded forest redolent of a nation's past. Could be, like, a theme you'd employ, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, they never actually, like, deign to fucking explain how the shit works. But it's so funny, like, in 50 pages here, it's like, oh, no, there are, there are like, magic energy fields around the forest. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and once They're you go... They're thrown back by an energy field. Yeah, you, and, yeah. like, and once you go in, you'll see, like, all the levels of English history. And this is where the time slows down, and right. this is where the river gets big, and... Exactly. Yeah. So, did you, uh, did you like that, or dislike that? I don't know. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I actually liked it. It just seemed kind of refreshing. Like, the clear signal markers of, like, genre here. I mean, I, I liked it, and it's refreshing, but also, like, really interesting, and that they're there. I mean, in a different kind of book the mystery would be, like, the raisin tetra, not, like, the hook, because, like, it's explained, whereas it's the leftover shit, right? You, you, you use the rapture a way to tell an otherwise, like, boring domestic story and mm-hmm. give it some sort of teeth, but you don't actually care about the rapture. The whole draw to get there. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Whereas here, like, hey, I gotta explain this thing. It's funny, because I was listening to a fellow podcast the other day, Book Fight, Great podcast. Like it a lot. Oh, yeah, I like that. But they'd read, like, a science fiction book, and the one dude was saying how... Saying I didn't like it for exactly the opposite reason. 
like he wants like uh, a story about relationships and like interpersonal dynamics, which is cool. Totally like that too. But was kind of saying like, oh, like there's this one chapter where it's just like info dump explaining like what this world is, how it works, who's in charge of it, which I totally understand if it's done badly. It seems interesting because you see here a very clear marker of like, this is what this is like in these, like people are interested in how this works. Oh, totally. It's not just like a device to like, tell me, like, let me tell an interesting story. To talk about like some characters, like existential yeah. anguish. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually like, the, the rapture's crazy. Exactly. <laughs> Where'd everyone like, go? How did it happen? Totally. Like if Leftovers was written by like a genre dude, it'd be like, it'd be, one, it'd be told from the like perspective of like presidents, <laughs> like yeah. dealing with this shit. Like, I mean, like in a really bad lieutenant dialogue or whatever still though we'd see like well how do people in nepal feel oh yeah yeah exactly <laughs> china and russia team together now and they're coming after the u.s right. and jesus has come back and he's saying i did this for these reasons and he's an alien right and yeah, right yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be set in like a small connecticut town yeah okay how am i going to be a cop after this so I mean, basically a lot you, of people died you write like leftovers fan fiction <laughs> if you like that <laughs> what do you think about cop voice <laughs> Anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying something that, I mean, less good or bad than just, like, because it's an interesting thing to see. I thought the tone of the story while I was reading it felt haunted. And I feel like that's a big thing. Because in a way, like, if we want to factor in all of the, the war shit and the trauma shit and the family, Freudian, whatever, just zoom out from that. And it's a story about, like, haunted people. Mm-hmm. You know, like, by, like, history and the past, sexual longings for hot teenagers and, like, the whole thing. And I thought the story itself had that. And maybe that's what you were talking about when you said you felt, it felt scary. Because mm-hmm. it did feel sort of like something happening at the edges where you can't see it. He pulled off that mood. Well, should we move on to our final segment? Well, it's not our final one. This is the last time we're doing it. <laughs> uh, cringe Factor. Cringe Factor, the cover. Would you read this in public? How would you feel about reading it in public? Mythago Wood. It's not bad, right? I mean, it's not the worst title. Well, describe the cover. The one that we have has a very clearly haunted, scary wood, which is surrounding this man in like an old helmet, a bird warrior. But it's not the worst. I'll try to describe this a little better. It's a helmet like <laughs> that, that is a hawk head that's probably made of bronze and you see a lot of long hair coming out the Is bottom. that a hawk head? Where are you getting this hawk thing what from? You, look at that hawk beak. It's like Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp has a hawk beak? He has a hawkish personality. Does he? Yeah. Are you saying Val Kilmer from... Val Kilmer isn't Wyatt Earp. I'm so embarrassed <laughs> for you right now. Who's Wyatt Earp? The Goldie Hawn's boyfriend. Goldie Hawn's boyfriend? Yeah. Patrick Swayze? <laughs> no, he's gay. In Overboard? The guy in Dirty Dancing? Uh, yeah, the guy in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> Definitely not gay. I think he's gay. Oof. Not Patrick Swayze. What's his fucking name? The guy in Roadhouse. Oh, Jonathan Lipnicki. No, what's his name? The guy in Roadhouse. Your Sam favorite a- movie. Sam Elliott. I used to fuck guys like you in prison. <laughs> <laughs> That's Patrick Swayze, Bree. It is? Yes. Fuck me. Who's the other guy? Ted Turner? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell. Maybe that is him. Kurt Russell has a hawkish like appearance in the movie Tombstone. You, End of podcast. You've watched a lot of Tombstone, but there are like two. It's one of those weird times when they put out two movies right in a row that deal with the same thing. I feel like there were two OK Corral movies at the same the time. The Kevin Costner, Wyatt Earp? Yes. Yeah, that one sucked. <laughs> Tombstone's so good. <laughs> yeah, Patrick Swayze's totally not gay. I think Patrick Swayze was gay. And I'm not just going after Dirty Dancing. Do you know that he was a certified pilot with an instrument rating? Uh, yeah, I'm alive. Anyway, 
So let's go. Oh, I just typed in, was Patrick Swayze gay? And I got an article that says, Patrick Swayze was horrible when drunk. Actor's widow opens up about... Not a widower. Not a widower. But rough, come on. He's dead, she's going to open up about how he was shitty when he was drunk? I love that his Wikipedia page has a section called Swayze in hip-hop culture. Apparently his name You didn't even know about his pilot thing, so... <laughs> People would say, and I'm Swayze, to mean like a ghost. Wait, since you're looking at his page, Swayze's not his real last name, no? Let me check it out. Patrick Swayze, nay, Patrick David? Nope, Patrick Mythago. Whoa. Whoa. Yep, Swayze's his real name. Let's figure out what his heritage is. We'll figure this shit out. He was the second child of Patsy Yvonne Helen, who has her own Wikipedia page, apparently. Patsy Yvonne was the mother of Patrick Swayze. <laughs> she was a famous choreographer, dancer, and dance instructor. That explains Whoa. his moves. And his father has his own page, too. A famous bad drunk. Does uh, does it have his widow's address in there? <laughs> yeah, it says she would prefer people who have questions about her husband's sexuality not to call anymore. I'm sorry, I really apologize. No, no, why would I apologize? I have nothing to apologize for. So, it's not wrong to be gay? You know that old phrase, apologize most of all to the dead. I think that's Rob the Dead. <laughs> all right. Cringe factor. Um, For me... Mythago Wood, scale of one to five, five being I'm reading it in my bedroom, one being I'm reading Masturbating it. Masturbating on the subway. <laughs> yeah, I give it a one. Whoa. I mean, I don't there's give it a, a zero. There's a hawk helmet on the front. There's, and like Mythago Wood looks real fantasy-ish. I don't know, maybe it's my mood right now, but like, I don't care. I'm going to read this book everywhere, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's not bad. I like that the back's all green. I'm giving it a 2.5. I feel like... I feel like Cringe Factor segments losing steam. Anyone with suggestions? It's just going to become more and more like you're giving it a three and I'm like, hey, it's zero. Hey, while we're at it, we got some uh, housekeeping for anyone listening. The dust on the microphone? Exactly. With two orders of business. We have a Twitter page. Check us out. Friend us. Oh, yeah. Genre Stop. What's our at Twitter handle? Is that what they're called? <laughs> it's someone just go to Google or Bing. Type in at sign, genre stop. I think everyone listening has a better grasp on Twitter. And then... Um, and don't make the mistake I did. If you want to private you message things, me at all, that's cool. <laughs> ASL, make sure you let her American know. American Sign Language? Age, sex, location, species. Cause, Whoa, because you know. Breeze. <laughs> oh, no, I actually didn't mean that. I meant like because we do the podcast about like aliens and wizards and shit. Okay. So, yeah. Check us out on Twitter. And also, we're going to be giving a live podcast in your area. <laughs> Come check us out Thursday, September 43rd. We will be in... Let me check and see if this is right. I don't know. We scheduled this years ago. Damascus, Syria. Okay. Oh, we don't want to back out of that, though, right? We have to pay a couple hundred dollars. But um, I don't know. Maybe see if you can make it if you want. No pressure. Just dress right, we're saying. Right, like exactly. it's not, you know, it's not informal. You mean it's, it's gonna be hot. Yeah, yeah. Shorts. You get preferential treatment, just make sure you wear a big sign that says I am American. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so um we'll meet you in Damascus, also <laughs> the name of my next album. <laughs> but beyond that, uh let's do the general rating on this. Alright, general rating coming <laughs> up. What are you giving this? How many mythagos? You can't come up with a better one than how many mythagos? 
Do you you never? Try, I wish you were going to try and speak Gwyneth's language the whole time. Okay, so do you think that was like? <laughs> Like how quickly she learned English. I feel like this book wanted and was inviting and encouraging someone to like look really into the myths he was alluding to. Mm-hmm. I don't sure have to. He, was, he did. <laughs> sure, like that was like some sort of Celtic language, right? Like he went down to fucking Cornwall and had some like some people teach him how to say like, "Can I make you a bath?" Because <laughs> oh, like, she was making him baths all the time. Right. Oh, Quinn is so hot. She kind of was. She was kind of you know, wearing her that oversized shirt. Remember that one time when they had a party? Keaton came over. She gave everyone, like, beer. Oh, yeah. If only the herb scum didn't come. That was going to be a little threesome. <laughs> the a little fucking Gwyneth gangbang later. I noticed Keaton seemed a little fancy. Or, like, he was he was into her. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently he was just trying to find, like, the peaceful city. But, like, right. second best. Second hot best. teenager. <laughs> exactly. What do you give it? This, oh, I'm going first. How many herb scrums? I have a hard time with this book because for the first half of it, I was really into it. And by the end, I kind of hate to say this, by the end, I was really wanting it to be over. I was ready to move on to the next book, though once I got there, I I regretted it immediately. It's City of Bones, people. Oh, God. Um, so I'm going to say... Better known as his Mortal Instruments? No, it's you're mixing up Mortal <laughs> Instruments and his Dark Materials. You're already upsetting me. I thought quality-wise, this book was like a... Like a 7.3. 7.3. 7.3. Nice. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have time. I'm busy. <laughs> I can't say the point. But um, right, I thought my enjoyment of it by the end was like a 6. You know? Yeah, or like, yeah. like kind of like that. So I think I'm going to go ahead and give it a, a 6.8. Although that feels low to me a little. It feels a little low. But I'm so. giving it a 6.8 because it, I, I wanted it to be done for the last 100 pages of it. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I agree. Although, strangely, I think waiting a month to do this has benefited it because in talking about its themes and what it's doing and kind of like what it's playing with, I like it more than just the reading experience. I mean, I agree. That's why I feel kind of shitty about my reading because I do, I feel like I could talk about the stuff in this book in yeah, a way that, that's a good know? way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are going to be many books we've maybe rated higher that don't have the post hoc conversation factor. And I also felt that the part in the forest at the end was just too much. And still, like you said, not doing anything. And, like, so much happened in the final six pages that seemed like you thought were going to be the part of the, the point of the book anyway. I mean, like, his he meets his dad, the arm scrum. Yeah, I mean, we and, didn't even really talk about Right, that. and yeah. that guy, I mean, so it ends with, after he, like, fights his brother, the arm scrum tum- comes, and, like, his whole point has been to find Gwyneth, and then, the, like, the arm scrum takes Gwyneth. He's, like, oh, sad, and waiting for her to get back, and then she comes back. But we learned that in a really, like, elliptical aside in, like, a fable. It's the epilogue, way. yeah. Right. Anyway, so so I agree. At the same time, I thought a lot of what he was doing and playing with was kind of interesting. Um, I liked the idea. It was kind of fun. And even just in a really, like, cheap, like, here are all these different, like, figures from history that were kind of fun. I'll give it a 7.3 or 73. All right. You're higher on this one. This might be the first one. Oh, no, you're a little higher on The Martian. Would you give it a three? <laughs> we can't talk about the Martian anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How excited are you for the uh, the Ridley Scott vehicle coming Fuck up? me. I saw the preview. Can you believe they're making a movie out of it? No. It's so upsetting. Almost any other book we've read, make a movie out of that. Would you go see a Mythico Wood movie? Yeah. That's a neat thought. I think a Mythico Wood movie could be like really atmospheric yes. and really good. Agreed. Who are you casting? 
I cast Michael Fassbender in every role <laughs> for everything. As Gwyneth? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, you know who would be a great Gwyneth? Oh, I mean, she's too old. Well, not say she's too old. She looks amazing. <laughs> you know, if you're listening to this, this woman. Fuck me. I don't know her name. <laughs> Dakota Fanning? No. I think the perfect Gwyneth would be, I think her name's, I'm, no, I'm going to mispronounce it, Lota Verbeek. She was in, well, she was in that show, The Borgias. She played the Pope's mistress, and then I know she was just an outlander, and she played the witchy woman. And she's just like, she She looks exactly how I imagine Gwyneth, and she also acts sort of strange all the time, which mm. I think would be great. That's good. All right. Let's, so who do we call? Who uh, Who are you casting as the Erm Scrum? <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Lipnicki. Please stop saying that. <laughs> I'm going to go Anthony Hopkins, the father of us all. <laughs> I think this is a wrap. Feels good to be back at the saddle. It's actually hard because you have to choose someone who resembles a boar and paint a human face on them. Yeah, right. uh, come back two weeks from today and join us for when we discuss City of Bones, the first of the Mortal Instruments series. And the second in our series of City of series. <laughs> it's true. Oh, yes. So we're going to talk about that one. So come bring your demon-killing instruments. I'm not excited to talk about this wink, one. Wink, wink, wink. It might be short. Bree read it in two days. I'm struggling. Yeah, Scott's been working on it for about a month. So, so yeah, it's good. You've had more time to sit with it. So we'll see you later. Be careful in the forest. Because the mythic is. But generally, take a lot of supplies, water, wear long pants. Don't eat anything just because you see it. <laughs>